Okay, what could be the bigger, like, the overall topic? Wait, what are the themes in her poetry? Anna Akhmatova? Is that right? I mean, we're not going to... I'm not really going to talk about her poetry so much. Um, or except for maybe Requiem, but... Yeah, Akhmatova. I mean, the diary, at least the first... There's, like, two parts or two two separate diaries. And the first one is really um, about, like... Her life in the 30s and the terror. Terror. Okay, so we, we could just say like um, primary <laughs> source literature about the terror. Yeah. Or I don't know. I mean, it doesn't, because like the Gulag Archipelago is, isn't it about like the whole Gulag system and the history of the Soviet yeah. Union? Yeah. Which is interesting and like whatever. Maybe we don't need to artificially tie it together, but I just want to make sure people understand that like. Yeah, the terror is like a specific phenomenon time period and the gulag mm-hmm. existed after stalin and before mm-hmm. and before the soviet union well not with that name but yeah have you read the any of the gulag archipelago uh-uh have you no all right <laughs> informed <laughs> scholars that's okay but i read enough about it that i have an opinion <laughs> the more i fucking read about solzhenitsyn the more i'm like Oh Stay yeah! Stay away! Gonna, yeah, yeah, you're gonna. It's it's pretty great, actually. Uh, a little tidbit I found. I mean, it's it's the right out there, though. But when you Google his name, but do you want to just start with him? If, uh, we're not gonna introduce the podcast. Oh, okay. From Leningrad, no, just kidding, sorry, that's not funny, from St. Petersburg, and Brooklyn. This is She's in Russia, I'm Lily. (laughs) This is Stalin Apologists Anonymous. I knew that that was going to be what this is actually going to end up being about. (laughs) Anybody who questions anything suddenly is an apologist. Yeah. I like I like the idea of being a solid apologist, but like on an interpersonal scale, like you go out and he's like kind of a dick to somebody and you like apologize for him. He's just a little drunk. Like like in his like if you lived in Stalin's yeah. time. Yeah. You were a Stalin apologist. Yeah. He just like as a rule never apologizes himself. So he has yes, an apologist. He is with him at all times <laughs> my pocket apologist <laughs> yep and that's what we are okay um so so solzhenitsyn um soldier soldier <laughs> he was an author he won the nobel prize for literature in 1970 you know, like every um, other he prick wrote out there <laughs> i know you get the one prize and they think that they're just like the the bee's the definitive voice on everything yeah. i know um okay so he, the main points about him is that he wrote a bunch of books that were very famous both in russia and the west and the one that we're going to focus on is gulag archipelago which was a massive book of three different volumes that were published over time and originally published in the, the Samis dot fashion that kind of collected, th- they compiled a lot of different things amongst them, interviews with I think like hundreds of people who were in the Gulag system um, during the same time that Solzhenitsyn was there, which was for eight years. Right after the war, I guess. Like, Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. So he was, he was fighting, uh, in the war and then he like wrote a bunch of 
uh, like anti-communist, anti-Stalin letters and was arrested for it and sentenced to eight years. Um, and I think he spent four in one gulag and then he was moved to uh, one of those like science-based Yeah, ones he did research. He like, like doing research right, there, so yeah. Not, not hard labor once he was there. And plus right, he's right. just like, was he a historian? I don't know if he was actually a historian or like a pseudo historian, but I feel like he was like a kind of like intelligentsia person, right? Like intellectual. His his father was like a wealthy landowner and and an acquired a large estate in the northern foothills of the Caucasus. That's his dad. Uh huh. His dad. Hello, landed gentry. All right, we got it. So he he was born in 1918. He studied mathematics prior to going into the military. So that was like his training, and then he took. Of his own volition, he took courses uh, in philosophy, literature, and history. Uh -huh, so, uh -huh. Yeah, the, the publishing, since we're focusing on the Gulag Archipelago, the publishing of that occurred starting, I think it was first published in 1973, and I think it was first published by like a, a Parisian publishing house. Uh, and it got, it, the reason it was published at that time was because the KGB had started like, what's the word, invading, um, like searching people who might have part of the manuscript so he would like he like secreted parts of the manuscript around moscow um in order for there not to be like a single point of failure first blockchain yeah <laughs> there had been a few like like his typist was investigated by the kgb and told them where like part of the manuscript was and so he just went ahead and said okay let's publish it now it's ready so it got published in 1973 and it was pretty immediately translated into other languages but not English, in Russia. not the following year right not published in russia though presumably people had access to it and i think that parts of it had been published like via underground prior to it or were following that uh -huh. okay so the reception i'm just going to talk a little bit about the rece reception in the west because you said on the last episode that he's a bit of a like soviet horrors whore evil, evil whore yeah yeah um and that's definitely true it, it's in i mean i haven't read it so i can't say but i've read a fair number of like reviews of it both cur from current time and from like a f within a few years of it being published and sort of the main criticism that people had was that one it was like it was a really important like document that existed because this just ha didn't exist yet. Um, you know, the Russian government had been or the Soviet government had been very um, closed. Well, <laughs> I guess except for sort of uh, one exception, his first thing that was published. But this, I, as I understand it, the archipelago is like, yeah, the first like semi oral history kind of thing that's happening. Right, right. And so everybody was like, huzzah about that, which, yeah, it seems like a good thing. But I guess the book itself is kind of everything is cast in underneath his like ideology and his main conclusion or like thesis of the book, in addition to just having like all these testimonials of people that were plagued by the penal system at the time, was that he was arguing that oh, the gulag system wasn't like an aberration of Stalinism. Like it existed from the get-go with like Lenin. Like you can trace back the penal system to being like inherent essentially to like communism. And because of this assertion or this sentiment, it was not received super positively by leftists mm -hmm. who obviously didn't like his saying that 
the gulag system was like intrinsic to communism. Mm -hmm. Um, And so even in the 70s, when it was originally published, it was used by people that were anti-communist or Mm -hmm. anti-Soviet Union as a like reason for for why the Soviet Union was a bad, immoral place. Uh And one like kind of conspiratorial article I read about this was like, you you better notice that anytime Solzhenitsyn comes up in the West, like he's being used as a tool for whatever like right wing cause is happening at the time. So Mm. the one little interesting tidbit I found, which anybody would know if you go and look at the Wikipedia for the Gulag Archipelago, but which I did not know is that it was re-released in 2018 um, with a new forward by Jordan Peterson. Do you know who Jordan Peterson is? No. Oh, no. Some right okay. person. Yes. So I have a, I have a small clip for you to play. So I did we never talk about um, ContraPoints? What is that? I know what that is, but I have a boy. She She's a YouTuber. Oh, yeah. I wa- we watched one oh, we episode. Did. Yeah. Oh, okay. I really liked it. So, she, so she did. Yes, she's amazing, and everybody should go watch her YouTube videos. But she did one about Jordan Peterson, so I'm just gonna play her introducing him. Reason, power, truth. These are the kinds of topics that I simply don't care about. Unfortunately, we have to talk about them because of a guy named Jordan Peterson. So, who's Jordan Peterson? Well, he's a psychology professor at the University of Toronto who got famous for sounding the alarm about how protecting transgender people under Canadian human rights law shall surely lead to Stalinism. Since then, he's been touring North America as a celebrity lecturer. David Brooks called him the most influential public intellectual in the Western world, and his self-help book, 12 Rules for Life, is a national and international bestseller. I'm starting to think we may need to take this guy seriously. Okay. So that's just, yeah, a small tidbit about how, how, who Jordan Peterson is. And I went and I like watched a like short seven minute lecture um, of him talking about Solzhenitsyn. And oh God. he's like talking really solemnly. And he's like, and Solzhenitsyn is like, he, he refers to him basically as one of the greatest authors ever. Uh-huh. And whenever people do that, who are like objectively not qualified to make those sorts of statements i'm just like who the fuck are you <laughs> it doesn't make any sense remember, that you just get to declare that like remember when the columbia columbia film person said that the end of bombast <laughs> yeah. was the best ending in contemporary cinema <laughs> yeah like that kind of shit i'm like who the fuck are you you stupid little bitch like you yeah. don't know anything yeah, no, it's, crazy. it's really it's really annoying and he's just saying it in this like solemn pretentious way to like a bunch of 20 year olds what a loser oh, God. um yeah so everybody lo- i mean everybody loves to like jack off though to soldier needs and stuff or they did at least at some point and i think now people are starting to understand but you can see why it's like easy to do that and confusing because you're like wait i want to be anti-totalitarianism but i also want to be not <laughs> i also love Stalin, but i also <laughs> don't want to be this peterson guy or like yeah. right wing or but i also want to be leftist and it, it's hard for people it, it yeah. just goes back to that thing of is it possible to take the Russian paradigm of politics and and map it onto any sort of ideology in the West. And it just makes it very difficult. But going back to like the 70s, around the time that 
the Gulag Archipelago was originally published, like he gets from the first volume, he gets like a fair amount of attention. People are like, woohoo. Um, in the West, I'm talking about specifically, even though leftists were like, uh, we don't love this. But he falls out of favor pretty quickly. Like people are mostly indifferent about him. And a lot of articles I read claimed, and I don't know where this idea comes from, but that that kind of started with this speech he gave at Harvard. Oh, um, yeah. Where he, Mother prior Rebecca. to this, he had been like pretty positively Western, you know? Wait, wait, um, wait, hold on. Before you say about the speech, did he already have the Nobel Peace Prize when he made the speech? Yeah, he got, not the Peace Prize, oh, Nobel sorry. Prize in literature. Literature. Yeah, he, he got that in 1970 before he even published the Gulag Archipelago. Okay, so he got that for, I guess... Partly for Rwandan research, which I'll mention later. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. And, and um, you know, he's like, he's Christian and that translates well into Western ideology. And he's anti-Soviet, which translates well into Western ideology. But then he gives the speech at Harvard where he's like, America sucks too because you're weak. And it's funny because the way he talks is very similar to the way that um, Jordan Peterson talks and even <laughs> a little bit remember uh, when we were talking about uh, that Camille Peglia book and how she like is kind of one of those people that is like the end of western civilization is coming because of all the transgender people and the decadence you know how, yeah, yeah yeah the decadence yeah so he is kind of touting these ideas in the 70s so and also like this guy I mean you know this but this guy has like a full orthodox looking beard he does look um, like an old like Tolstoy person yeah he does, yeah. Now at last, during past decades, technical and social progress has permitted the realization of such aspirations, the welfare state. Every citizen has been granted the desired freedom and material goods in such quantity and of such quality as to guarantee, in theory, the achievement of happiness in the morally inferior sense of the world which has come into being during those same decades. In the process, however, one psychological detail has been overlooked, the constant desire to have still more things and a still better life, and the struggle to obtain them imprint many Western faces with worry and even depression, though it is customary to conceal such feelings. Active and tense competition fills all human thoughts without opening a way to free spiritual development. The individual's independence from many types of state pressure has been guaranteed. The majority of people have been granted well-being to an extent their fathers and grandfathers could not even dream about. It has become possible to raise young people according to these ideals, leading them to physical splendor, happiness, possession of material goods, money and leisure, to an almost unlimited freedom of enjoyment. So who should now renounce all this? Why and for what should one risk one's precious life in defense of common values and particularly in such nebulous cases when the security of one's nation must be defended in a distant country? 
Even biology knows that habitual extreme safety and well-being are not advantageous for a living organism. Today, well-being in the life of Western society has begun to reveal its pernicious mask. <laughs> pernicious? Wait, what year is that? 1978. I feel like I can't like make a definitive definitive statement on him as a person because I haven't actually read any of his stuff. But well, I mean, at least people that use him seem like they're full of shit. I mean, Jordan Peterson is full of shit, right? And that's not like his fault, but he definitely. I mean, yeah, he's expressing himself pretty extremely. That was that's the thing is he became really popular in the West not only because like his books were published there, but he went around touring like discussing these sorts of topics about you know like the Soviet Union and the Gulag system, you know, he was effectively, yeah, he, he was exiled um, following the publication of the Gulag Archipelago and then returned to Russia later in his life. But he lived in Vermont for a little bit. Mm. But yeah, it's kind of funny because there are like, I don't want to be unfair to the guessings, but there are definitely like parallels there. It's like, okay, Russian Soviet government is bad in some way. And then you build a career in the West off talking about how it's bad yeah i mean the interesting thing or not interesting but just something i want to note about him maybe the last thing is that nobody knew about him as a writer until 63 when he published his first novel was published which is called the day in the life or it's translated to a day in the life of ivan denisovich and it was published in the literary journal novi mir in 63 it's published with like explicit permission permission from Khrushchev. This is like ten years since Stalin died, but it's it's still the sort of high times of the um anti-Stalin wave, the like breaking down the cult of personality thing after Khrushchev's secret speech. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Are you with me? I'm with you. All right. His desire to publish this whatever you want to call it. In this case, it was a piece of fiction. It didn't, I don't think it like had ambitions to be a historical document the way I think the archipelago did explicitly, right? The archipelago right. is yeah. more like a historical like work, which is why it gets a lot of criticism in academia. His, right, and his, it gets a lot of criticism in academia because it doesn't like follow the method that you should if you're trying to be an accurate historical like, it's document. It's not rigorous. Yeah. It's not rigorous. And his first wife... Also, there's like claims that she did this under duress of the KGB, but said in a memoir of hers that he didn't intend for it to be like a a historical document. Like it it was originally meant to be like a collection of notes that he would use to craft other novels. Mm. Regardless, first he publishes a fiction piece, which is like the idea of it is like a day in the life of this guy, I think in Russian it's literally like one day of Ivan Denisovich, who's like okay. a regular like proletariat or I don't, or is he like a peasant? I don't know. He's like not not Solzhenitsyn, um, who's in, in the camps and it's just like, yeah, like sort of the everyday life one, one day in his life. I don't know, like I also didn't read it, but minute, minute descriptions and all that stuff was definitely like new for the general public to read mm-hmm. stuff like that coming out for the general public right so like maybe some people are getting letters or whatever but this is something published and is published officially and that was published in like again with explicit what did i say uh, permission 
permission, yeah. But maybe that's not the word I wanted, but whatever. And the point is that, like, at that moment, I mean, not to be too cynical, but, like, basically th- that moment, like, what Khrushchev and what the state wanted and what Solzhenitsyn was saying in that novel just aligned really well. And, like, this was a good chance to show to shed more light on like how bad and fucked up the Stalin years were because that was like the time period that the novel was set in Mm -hmm. so rather than you know like publishing it as like obviously they're not going to publish it as a critique of communism or something they were just like looking at it as like a critique of Stalinism the authorities were basically I just want to say that his position his position his like official position in Soviet society changes over the course of 10 years like really significantly and he right from like negative to positive and then to negative yeah and like later his later the authorities sort of also see Ivan Denisovich as being anti-soviet uh, not not just anti-stalinist so yeah i mean that kind well, of probably like, probably in the like cast of or in the shadow of the gulag archipelago right where he's claiming that the gulag isn't just a stalin does he not even talk? I mean, I guess he didn't read it, but like he doesn't talk about how like pre-communism there were also camps. Not interesting. Uh, he, I think that he does based on the reviews that I read, but I think that he, at least the one review that mentioned that particular thing, claimed that he doesn't make the, he says like the lineage between those two things are, uh, is a false lineage. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. He, he's like, this is Lenin's doing. Yeah. So... I mean, yeah, it's interesting that it's, like, resurfacing or that his popularity is, like, maybe resurfacing in, like, a particular circle now. Yeah, it's really, it's unfortunate. I mean, yeah, with people who are, like, really anti-Marxist or something and also don't have the context for what, like, that book even is, you know? And they just get to, like, be like, here's a massive tome on the horrors of communism. Yeah. And I think, yeah, and then it also has a lot of, it's also really questionable as a historical document, as we said, in terms of its accuracy and like, okay, maybe he didn't intend it to be, but people interpret it that way. So people Right, and especially in the vacuum of there being, at the time that it was published, there being no primary sources, like this was the definitive primary source. It's a cool, like, from a, like, artistic perspective it it might be like a really cool thing but it just sucks that it's been used in a very particular way or a very particular political manner right and that's like and that's like one of the you know ongoing trends of like sort of an an academic or like historical document it's like maybe academics will like turn up their nose and be like oh yeah well we don't look at that as like a real historical source of course but it's like what you write nobody reads (laughs) okay so (laughs) you need to figure out like a better way to to learn how to write things yeah (laughs) yeah yeah no it's true it's other side notes about him like the whole christian thing like he becomes more orthodox over time yeah and he does spend a fair amount of time like praising the russian orthodox church and in particularly like the authoritarian political to do tradition he's not a democrat you know no he's not a democrat folks and um also he's one of the ideas he talks about is like uh ideology as as the bearer of evil is like much more insidious because when you're working under an ideological paradigm versus a religious one the evil like exists in everybody but 
with religion, you're really inwardly focused and, in, and are focused on rooting out that evil within yourself. But in an ideological paradigm, um, you're not concerned with that. And so the evil just like exists in everybody and anybody can be like captured by it. The New York Times in 1974 published an excerpt of the Gulag Archipelago, um, a review in 2008, which I think was on some mm. anniversary in the Guardian review of books. Well, he died. Oh, he died. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It was an obituary. This sentence is from that. So Solzhenitsyn was acknowledged as a truth teller and a witness to the cruelties of Stalinism, of unusual power and eloquence. His fame grew exponentially. He was hailed as a fearless chronicler of evil and as the greatest Russian writer of his time. Oh. So you just, I mean, it's just like, yeah, you amass these things. Like, it really does have a similar feeling to me as, like, the Masha Gessen thing, just because <laughs> it's, a, it, I know, I'm sorry, Gessen. Just that, yeah, like, you get to whore out the evils of your home country to a Western audience. And then you're, like, praised as a, quote, truth teller. And, like, being fearless, like, you got exiled either, like, I mean, he was, you know, effectively deported but Gessen like self-exiled or whatever just that general like I've run away from the horrors and now I'm going to write about it in this book please buy it but it's like yeah of course but on but on the other hand that's like a good thing it's an important thing to do and like bearing witness and everything yeah of um, course is really important I think it really just comes down to what we've talked about before with Gessen which is like you know how you well, I was going to say how you position what you write. Like, are you doing this as, like, historical documentation and, like, trying to make it um, as rigorous as possible? Or are you writing a memoir, novel, or writing a piece of fiction? And it's not like it's their her fault or anyone else's fault if they read something she writes as, like, a historical documentation. I think mm -hmm. it's, like, well, she does more, like, she doesn't do fiction, so... She doesn't do fiction. She does do they journalism. Are they are like they historical are historical and they're presented things. as such. And she, I mean, uh, what we talk about, well, she writes in that way where she like explains things to a Western audience where they don't understand the nuances or complexities of it. And she explains it in a way that still sounds smart, but is simple enough for somebody to understand. It's not, it's not academic because it doesn't fucking cite sources. That's what's not academic. Academics, like you say a thing, you have a source. It's journalistic. Yeah. Which like, apparently you're allowed to not cite sources. And I, I, yeah. That kind of peeves me. I think that articles should cite sources. Well, I mean, yeah. They it's do. A lot of the up. times they do, but a lot of times they don't. <laughs> and in a like, book, you definitely don't cite all the You sources. don't. And you like kind of do that thing where you say something as if it's common knowledge, but nobody actually knows where it comes from. Right. And I feel like the big thing with like people coming specifically out of Russia, out of the Soviet Union, is that like what confuses people, for example, about Solzhenitsyn and like the popular imagination is that people want to have people in America definitely want to have like a duality of ideologies. Like there's because of like the Cold War, because of a lot of things, you know, there's communism, Soviet, and then there's capitalist uh, America, dem democratic. Yeah, America. Yeah. yeah. And like that those systems that there's only two and there's, mm -hmm. and that those systems like are opposing and one is better than the other. Like well, people have different, yeah. even people who are like yeah. anti-capitalistic and, and or whatever they like, I feel like a lot of people, maybe they don't position communism and dem democracy as opposites, but they're like two poles. Whereas like when you have 
someone like Solzhenitsyn who just doesn't fit into that map. Like he doesn't like America, but he also doesn't like what happened with the Soviet Union or how it, how it manif- how communism manifests. Yeah. In the Union. yeah, he just wants to like return to like a feudal state or something. <laughs> and people are like, oh, that's not one of our points in the dichotomy. Sorry. Yeah, and so he becomes really easy for people to different people to use, Adopt, which, is, yeah. which is similar. I mean, like the same thing happens with. What's her name? Puglia? Paglia. Paglia. I feel like people I feel like people also use her ideas. People who use her ideas, like she might not necessarily um want that or agree with their like you Right. Know, yeah, like any anybody that's not like strictly and steadfastly a leftist, like can be adopted easily amongst the rest of the if it's like if you're not so far on the extreme of being like full on fascist, and if you're not so far on the extreme of being like a full on leftist then anybody in the middle can get adopted for any other reason especially when you don't know the context from which it's coming it also just feels a little like cheap and lame to like to pimp out your country's history and like political history and suffering for an audience that isn't that isn't internal i mean i know solzhenitsyn did have a very large internal audience but he obviously was very set on like spreading the gospel in the West also. And it's like, what is the goal of that? Like, are you trying to make sure that communism doesn't spread elsewhere in the world? Like, are you just like, I think, yeah, like, I think what it's more is like, it? I, I mean, I don't know, but yeah, I think a similar thing with Gus and it's just like that, maybe that is like the thing that is the most bothersome. Cause it's like one thing to bear witness, but when you bear witness in such like a targeted way where you're like target audience is not, the audience that could check and balance what you're saying very well with their own experience. In fact, they can't because they don't have that experience. Like, right. it's really questionable because it's like you're okay, you're shedding light, but suddenly you're the only source for a lot of people because like, right. there's no one else it, with that experience that, you know, they know. Yeah. And yes. And at that point, it really feels like you're either like money grabbing or you like, you like being that role of like the narrator of, well, Russian sure. intellectuals that have escaped, you know, yeah. which is so lame. But uh, one, this reminded me in that excerpt from 1974 of the uh, from the Gulag Archipelago that the New York Times published. Um, there's part of the passage is this quote: "Oh, freedom-loving leftist thinkers of the West, oh, leftist laborites, laborites, oh, progressive American, German, and French students, for you, all this counts for little. For you, my entire book's." book amounts to nothing you will only understand it all when they bellow at you hands behind your back as you yourselves trudge off to our archipelago so like in a lot of ways like the book was from the get-go targeted at the west yeah but it's saying openly like this isn't for you lefties it's it's not for you lefties but i understand that the people reading this are westerners oh yeah yeah that doesn't surprise me yeah he actually uh, where did i read this I feel like I read it in my uh, Quantiva book that he, at some point, had the gall to comment something to Akhmatova <laughs> about her. Po- so, one of the like things that Akhmatova, one of the pieces of writing that she made during the thirties. I mean, who is it she? Could first? Al- it's also during the war. Okay, wait. Should I just say what the thing is? Yeah, sorry. Okay. It's called Requiem. It's like for anybody. It, it's like one of the most famous poems of Akhmatova and in general of that era, maybe in, in general of Russian poetry. But Requiem is like a series of poems 
I want to talk about how it was made because it's like it was a long process. But it was started in the 30s. And yeah, Akhmatova. Oh, you were going to say what he accused her or he deigned to say to about her? Oh, right. Sorry. I th- I, I, like, yeah, allegedly Solzhenitsyn came into contact with her at some point before she passed away in 66 and was like, yeah, like criticized Requiem for being too particular because it really tells, it's like about her experience after her son was arrested, her experience of the terror and like, you know, standing in line, prison lines and stuff for her son. And he's like, yeah, you, you did this thing, this like epic work, but it's like too particular. You need to be, you need to tell the more like general story or some bullshit. What a little bitch. Like, go away. <laughs> Nobody cares what you have to say. I'm sure she didn't give a single flying fuck what he had she's to say. She's like, uh... She's like, and who are you, sir? <laughs> He's like, yeah, I'm... You... I'm so <laughs> Never heard. Uh, she's, like, very much, like, a queen. She's She's been described as, like, regal, sad, tragic queen, all of these things. Because she is, like, one of the most important poets of Russian history, but she specifically is part of what is called, like in, in Russian literary history, what is called the Silver Age, which covers a very important time, which is the end of the 19th century and then the first few decades of the 20th century. And that's when you have, there's a lot of different, like sort of like poetic movements and schools. Then there's like symbolists, the Acmeus, which she was part of. Um, so it was Svetaeva in there? Futurist. I can't remember. Yeah, Svetaeva's in that too, yeah. time period. All these lady poets, so cool. Yeah, and Akhmatova is really, and they're all like badass and living like, you know, non-traditional, often described as bohemian lifestyles, many husbands and lovers and also kids. She had one son, but um, like it's badass. Then there's also like other questionable parts of it, but yeah. it's badass. But then also she's like wreaking emotional <laughs> havoc on everybody in her life. So yeah. awesome. But <laughs> so free, but also like she, <laughs> I'm just saying like, so because, because one of the other things that she's sort of from a, tr- like an aristocratic background, okay. like she was born in 89. Weren't they all though? Like aren't bohemians always from an aristocratic background? Probably. Right. Like, especially the intelligent, see uh like in in the rush in russian culture like the people who the sort of like poetic avant-garde experimental people i feel like are often pretty aristocrat from aristocratic origins but then they like i mean then they pretend to be poor i mean it's the classic story yeah, it's classic we know kids like that at reed <laughs> yeah. except for they just weren't yeah. as cool as Mayakovsky. yeah they were just like a 20 year old who like goes to a good school but <laughs> pretends to be poor but yeah i mean i th- i think that trend is probably it's like you're not even being poor for your art you're just being poor for your social presence i'm sure there so were real lame. poor people too but she definitely valorized poverty that's like a big theme okay in her life so anyway she's born with the last name Gar- garenko which sounds ukrainian it doesn't matter though i mean she ended up picking up this <laughs> picking up choosing her pseudonym from oh actually the pseudonym story is funny she chooses it because she has like sort of family mythology that um one of her maternal ancestors is a direct from the direct royal bloodline of Genghis Khan and it's Khan Akhmat Akhmatova who was so she invents the name it does that's not like a name that people have or is it I mean 
there must be Ahmads who are actually from that lineage. But right. Khan Ahmad was uh, was the last Tatar chieftain to the last Tatar chieftain to accept tribute from Russian rulers, and she traces mm. her lineage to so it's like is an ancestor of that person according to her family mythology. But like the thing I was reading was essentially saying like that's not true. But whatever, <laughs> she calls herself Ahmadova. And she, yeah, she comes from this, like, aristocrat, pretty aristocratic landed gentry, military, nobility family. Grew up in Sarskaya Silo, which is, like, the little suburb, Pushkin, where there's, like, a palace, and it's really pretty, and suburb of Petersburg. Okay. But, like, a real suburb, not, like, tall buildings. (laughs) Because it's the 19th century. So she's born in, what did I say, 1889, right? So she, yeah, so she's, like... She gets to experience the beginning of the 20th century and is part of that bohemian movement happening in like the tens and the teens uh, before it was all ruined. <laughs> ruined. And she's ruined. like pre pre World War One. She's she's very much um, her, she and her first husband are part of this poetic movement, Acnes that I mentioned. Gumal, Gumal, Nikolai Gumilyov is her first husband. He's like he's a poet. Um, apparently, he's one of the founders of this movement. So they're just like doing their thing. Spending a lot of time in um, in this one cabaret that still exists. I've been there, but it's, you know, not the same as it was in 1911, I'll tell you. <laughs> Just um, not like it was in the olden days. It's really, yeah, unfortunately. You know, you have to go downstairs to get into it. I think there are little windows, but it's like, like a sort of basement cabaret um, with like... A bunch of decorations and everything. I don't know how accurate the decorations are now. I think is it, not. Is it as sad as the, like, uh, what's that place called again? Kamchatka? No, I mean, it's not the same kind of sad, but it's also just, like, you know. Kitschy? Yeah. Gimmicky? Yeah, and now there's all these, like, sculptures. I mean, I think before it was more sort of, like, draped cloth or whatever, like, cabarets had oh, in yeah. 1912. But, but now that's, like, against fire code. <laughs> but no, no, it's still, there's still a lot of, like, different cloths and patterns and lamps but there's also i remember like a bunch of like cat sculptures or something i don't know um but it's called the stray dog <laughs> and okay. it's right near like it's it's in a very sort of fancy place and it was always called that um yeah i'm sure it closed and then reopened like you know in 2007 yeah i know oh god that i feel like they shouldn't do that sort of thing don't revive things yeah, well, I mean, it's a different thing. And it's, I actually went there with my host mom, and it was nice. She was like, she took me there the first time I went there to have like coffee or something. And she was like, this is where Anna Akhmatova read her poetry. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and we just like <laughs> looked at the decor, at the like cat sculptures, and, <laughs> and that's all. But anyway, so she's spending time there. And this is all before, before World War I, before the revolution. And, and yeah, like <laughs> she has a kid who ends up getting arrested. She has a son, Lev. For what? I don't know. Like, he, he gets arrested twice. I guess just general, like, enemy, enemy of the people. Like, I, I, I'm not sure. Political. Exactly. Yeah, political. Right there. Um, but I think it's probably... Oh, okay. So it must be more in connection. Sorry, I don't know the details about this, but um, butchering. But his father, Gumilov, this poet, he gets arrested really quickly and shot. In 21. Mm. Shot. Oh, damn. Prompt. Lev, it seems like, gets arrested during the, the, the purges in the 30s. Okay. Based basically on that. On just like being suspicious because of his dad. And how old was he? Like late teens? Yeah. When were you born, Levy? He was born in 1912. Okay. 
So that makes him about nine or ten when his dad gets shot. And then, and then like, oh, and then his twenties. Yeah, I guess in the thirties. I'm I'm giving this. I'm just like explaining, trying to explain like who Alphonse is, but I think that's pretty much enough to get an idea of who she is. Because, yeah, she comes from this, you know, like, pre-revolutionary sort of aristocratic underground poetry scene. She is, she's already very much an established poet from that and, like, an important poet by the 30s, for sure, by the 20s. So I kind of want to just talk about the years leading up to the diary are basically, like, set up what her life is going to look like from 1926 until... 19 well until the war so she and what that is is she's like living she has a another husband and then she's living sort of also cohabitating with this other they're all scholars they're all like either poets or scholars um and she ends up in what is now referred to as like the house on the fontanka the fontanka house where she spent most of those years and like which is outside of petersburg no 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 this is um in it's in petersburg it's very much in the center in a former the former sheremet of a palace um it's did we go to her museum no we only went to the freak museum right um well there's a museum like a apartment museum there now but the fontanka house is like the setting for a lot of her life basically and she ends up she ends up spending from 26 until she actually moves out in 52 but there's like an interruption there because during the war she gets evacuated that like situation is just really frames everything she is like living with her current her like current partner that she moves in with in 1926 his former wife is still living in the apartment there and daughter and someone else who's like their former family servant or whatever. So this okay. is like another example of like a communal apartment situation, but also showing the transition from the like aristocratic to Soviet lifestyle and how, first of all, they're in an apartment in the chairman of a palace, which is like a privilege to be there because Putin, who's the guy that she's moving in with, is like a scholar. So he gets, he's allowed to live a there. A special house. Wait, what's his name? It's not a house. It's Punin or Punin. Okay. Like Putin, but without a T. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's an apartment, it's just like a set of rooms, but it's you know, and he gets to have both his <laughs> ladies there. Yeah, and like the, it's so <laughs> that's fu- kind of fucked up. I mean, it's just They're like yeah. you guys could all live together, right? One <laughs> another thing about Anna Kmatova that's reminded me of Svetayeva is that she like doesn't do domestic things like mm. cooking and cleaning. So she just a lot of her life, as people describe it, is her living in like pretty. Squalor. shitty conditions yeah squalor, squalor. Well, and then well, it does the ex-wife do household duties no but well yeah probably but like they also have this person who was formerly their servant but who is now like not their servant but still helps and this was a little bit confusing uh, to me i was like awkward. she maybe maybe they pay her a little bit but she's also like at least according to the the scholarship i was reading sort of gets to um gets more authority because she's like part of the proletariat like the ruling class and like has more authority than these like former aristocrat pansies basically mm-hmm. maybe i want to like pays her or something to like sometimes cook for her but basically she's just like not taking care of herself super well seems like so she's living in the same room as as her partner and then at one point like she wants to separate from him but she doesn't want to leave 
the communal apartment because she doesn't want to be in like a new communal apartment and that's like the only option <laughs> and she's like i don't want to be amongst all like strangers and like i'm comfortable here so she suggests switching rooms with the ex-wife <laughs> who then goes back <laughs> with, with so then the ex-wife is in the room with her former husband yeah i guess and like aglantava has her own room and Lev is there for at some point, and then when he gets arrested, I mean, she's there for like all of those many, many years. How long is that? Twenty six to forty one, fifteen. Uh huh. So yeah, and like when Lev gets arrested, she is like really convinced he's gonna come back, and she's wants to save. There's all the all these like dramas and like scheming about how to get another room for him, and but all around, all with the intent of staying in that apartment for some reason. In that like set of rooms mm. um, that she loves so dearly. People comment on that a lot because it's controversial because she was during that period she gets sort of she's like sort of disfavored by the Soviet authorities and her work isn't being published. But before that she was like acclaimed and basically people argued that there were times when she was just choosing to live the way she did. It wasn't like she was being forced to live there. Like she was she was offered more like privileged accommodations by the Union of Writers and stuff, allegedly, during this period. She turned it down on principle. Okay. <laughs> she was de- definitely like anti-Soviet in the sense that she wanted to like separate herself morally from, from as much as possible from like benefiting from the Soviet system. At least that's how she was trying to position herself. I understand. During... The periods from 1938 to 1942, and then again later after the war. So not all of that time, but specifically like the peak of the terror, which was pointed to as like 37, 38. Anna Akhmatova was very, very close with another literary figure, editor and scholar, Lydia uh, Chukovskaya. And Lydia Chukovskaya basically took upon herself the task of documenting Anna Akhmatova's life in a diary from those years so like pre and then into war that's 38 to 42 she just she met with her every day and obviously had like an amazing memory because she I mean I'm imagining she's not like writing everything in the moment because that would be annoying af um (laughs) she like documented you know just the everyday life scenarios conversations they had a lot of it is like verbatim or supposedly verbatim and a really important thing she did and this is what I was going to talk about in terms of requiem is during that period she memorized Anna Akhmatova's poems Anna Akhmatova would write poems but she wouldn't write them down or she wouldn't keep them written she would just tell them yeah let me did Anna Akhmatova know that she was recording all this stuff yeah Okay. She knew for most of it. I think there was a part after the war started where she maybe like they had a sort of falling out in, in 42. And I think right before that, she didn't know that Shukovska was still taking notes, but she was. I wonder how that process would work. Like she would recite to her a poem. and then... I'm going to tell you how it works. Oh, OK. So here's an excerpt from the diary. Anna Andreevna, when visiting me, recited parts of Requiem also in a whisper. Suddenly, in mid-conversation, she would fall silent, and signaling to me with her eyes at the ceiling and walls, she would get a scrap of paper and a pencil. Then she would loudly say something very mundane. Would you like some tea? Then she would cover the scrap in hurried handwriting and pass it to me. 
I would read the poetry and, having memorized it, would hand it back to her in silence. How early autumn came this year, Anna Andreevna would say loudly, and striking a match would burn the paper over an ashtray. <laughs> Why is she such a freak? Yeah, dude, she's cray. <laughs> this is one of the examples of like behavior that I think is diagnosable as paranoid. Yeah. A lot, a lot of the time. Maybe not that particular action but the ritual of it Chukovska comments on the ritual which she says so it's a beautiful ritual this like hand signals and she would burn it you know the whole process but just like Requiem's a long poem and it, I don't think that's not that's definitely not the only thing Chukovska memorized but she memorized all of it well it's she would memorize all of it and then write it down no no it was oh, in her wouldn't. mind okay she was also like she was a human manuscript for years. And then, oh, wow. Okay, wait. And then what happened? At, at what point did it all get written down? Requiem got written down for the first time in 1962. It was and when did she start telling it to her? She started telling it to her in 38. Oh, my God. Wait. So who who typed it? Um, it seems like Akhmatova in the end. So basically, after the war, they started revisiting it and like... They would still, they were still being very secretive and they would go off on like walks or something. And Anna Akhmatova would like check that Lydia, that Chukovskaya still remembered. remembered it. Yeah. And she was like, <laughs> oh, but Akhmatova, was, Akhmatova had a little thing. She had like a little sort of cult going where she was like, at some point she said like 11 people knew Requiem, had memorized okay. it. And then later after the war, she said seven, I think seven other people know it other than Chukovskaya. And they helped her remember, you know, like. Yeah. Call it in total. And then I know she, I don't know who typed it, but she came to Chukovska in, in December 1962 and said, like, I've typed the first copies up. The copies were published outside of the Soviet, in like 63 or something, outside of the Soviet Union first, um, and weren't published in the Soviet Union until 87. Wait, what, when did uh, Lydia die? Lydia, she lived much longer, 1996. Okay. So basically, like, this human manuscript thing is a really important, like, aspect of this relationship because, like, she feels not only... She mentions this at some point. Like, not only does she do this sort of for um, the historical documentation of the diary and stuff, you know, like, I'm documenting a poet's life, this really important poet um, who was at that time not... was too scared to keep a diary. So Lydia was writing down the diary. She also was her manuscript. She also was like a repository for her poetry, which is amazing. It is amazing. But do you, was this like a common practice at the time, you think? Because like, I mean, we talked about how social needs someone was like squirreling away parts of his manuscript all over the city. Like, I'd be kind of curious to know what the different methods of the paranoid artist are. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's not, and I, I don't know how common, I know memorizing poetry was very common for this reason. But I don't know how common oh. it is that it's never written down or, like, nobody writes it down later or something. But, like, I feel like there's other stories where, like, a wife of a poet remembered during these during this era, like, you know, memorized all of their work and then later wrote it down, like, other crazy shit. Is, is that why Russians are so into recitation or were <laughs> they into recitation before? I think, I don't, I don't know, but I think recitation is, like, I don't, I would doubt it's connected to this negative traumatic experience i feel like it was it's more considered like a skill that you should have like in school 
And I don't do you know. think it was considered like it's just weird to me that there I mean, maybe people's memories were just better back then and that was more common because you didn't have access to things all the time, so you memorized them, but it just seems like that I don't know. It is a it is a skill. That's a it seems like a skill, and it doesn't just seem like you could casually do that. Like be like, okay, you're going to remember this massive poem. No, but not anyone could years. do it. Not anyone could do it. But there are people who can do it, and those people like they're like considered heroes. I don't think it's not like every Russian has that like capacity. <laughs> it's in their genes. <laughs> <laughs> There's that. But in any case, um, oh, okay. Here's another example of her paranoia but again like it's not like i don't know i don't i don't want to say like it's not like her paranoia was like totally unwarranted it's just that r- reading this documentation of some of the things she did um feels like they were a little bit overboard and that seems to like also sort of fit in with at least the descriptions of her personality that i've read which is that she's a bit of a drama queen let me read this other sort of like yeah sort of funny but in a tragic way anecdote okay yeah so this is a thing that she used to do she was during these years she was convinced that the secret police were searching her room when she wasn't there so okay she she was convinced that people were going through her notebooks and stuff so or her books and her whatever she had so i guess she did write some things just like not important things like requiem and so she had this this Thing that the diarist that Joukowska refers to as volasok, which is like a little piece of hair. She would place a piece of hair in her notebook, okay? Mm-hmm. And if it was like moved, <laughs> classic, <laughs> when she opened the book again, she would think that somebody had looked through her books. I mean, I don't, that's not like crazy paranoid, right? Like, to be fair, her husband was shot and her son was arrested. Yeah, so. I agree. Like, it has, it's, yeah, I agree. But, like, that seems like a really bad way of measuring it because a hair can move really easily. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that was a classic thing that was done in a lot of, like, high jinxy type, like, uh, the Hardy Boys and, like, Nancy Drew. That's, like, the type of thing that they would do. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love them. I don't remember that. They put a hair I mean, or something? I'm not, I'm not giving that as, like, a specific example. I'm just saying, like, I, that trope of like using a hair and gently placing it across something to see if it's been moved is like something that exists in my brain already uh there's gotta be a better way (laughs) (laughs) it's the best it's indestructible so i'm reading these all all these excerpts from i should say from this book by irina papierna i think who is a professor at berkeley it's called stories of the soviet experience i've had this book since read and I'm finally reading it. Haha. <laughs> and I just want to read this part that just gives you a little like layout of the apartment. Okay. In the Fantanka Dome one. I'm going to read from Papirna's sort of analysis of it because she does like little excerpts and then into the excerpt. In this first entry, this is the first entry of the diary. Uh, Chukovska describes her entrance step by step up the tricky back staircase through the shabby entrance hall with its scraps of peeling wallpaper through the kitchen strung with washing lines, past a woman with soapy hands who opened the door, quote, something out of Dostoevsky, end quote, and finally into Akhmatova's room. And here's the excerpt. The general appearance of the room was one of neglect, ruin. By the stove, an armchair missing a leg, ragged springs protruding, the floor unswept, the beautiful things, the carved chair, the mirror in its smooth bronze frame, 
the Lubok prints on the walls did not adorn the room. On the contrary, Wait, what does they that only... mean? Huh? What's a Lubok prints? I don't know. God damn it. Oh, interesting. It's those like. Lubok is a Russian popular print characterized by simple graphics and narratives derived from literature. Oh, interesting. Whoa, I did not know what that was. Cool. The beautiful things did not adorn the room. On the contrary, they only emphasized its squalor further. That would be from November 10th, 1938. Later, she, when well, Nakamata was already in a different apartment and everything, much, much later, in like the 50s, Chukovskaya reconnects, they reconnect, and she sees the same furniture, like the chair with the broken leg, oh the mirror. God. It's all like misted over. And like Akhmatova's like lugged it around. She like has a... <laughs> But at one point, Akhmatova was basically, after the war, was being basically, like, nomadic. And she, like, only had a... She calls herself nomadic, but that just means she was staying with different friends. Um, <laughs> including staying with the family of the Punin family, who, like, her the husband partner had been arrested and died in the camps... Okay. And she, but she like ended up still living with the extended family. She didn't have children. No, but she was still close to the extended family. So when she's like moving around between Moscow and St. Petersburg after the war, she spends time with them. And she has a suitcase of uh, her manuscripts at that point and like is being very like ascetic, like all my things. There's like at some point there was a flood or something in her apartment and she like talked about it very epically you know like all my things were washed away um and she was left with her she just carried her manuscripts around that was another sort of paranoid move just so Mm -hmm. that like there was no chance somebody would take them or something would happen to them though i feel like there's a lot more of a chance of something happening to them when you carry them around yes (laughs) um but the flood like some people or at least one person like reported that actually wasn't that much water A pipe burst. <laughs> She's like, the blood that washed away my life and washed me clean. No, it's not. It's not funny. Don't laugh at her. Um, okay, there's a lot, but maybe because during the war she goes to Tashkent, which is interesting. She's she's um, the world's youngest city. What? remember that no the tashkent is like the world's youngest city now not not the city itself the population oh <laughs> i was like that's not possible <laughs> it was only made in 2000 <laughs> um what is that from how do you know that i know that because places like the calvary journal talk about it oh so it has like a very young population Oh my, yeah, no, it's actually crazy. 60% of the population is under 25 years old. Whoa. Yeah, that's really intense. That must be fun. Yeah. The youths. I, feel, I do feel kind of bad putting her in an episode with Solzhenitsyn. Why? Because <laughs> you think whatever. it makes it seem like they're the same or something? Yeah, like I don't want us to be like, we just like these two. I mean, okay, I guess they just offer different views on a time period sort of and a phenomenon i guess i'll let it go yeah i think you should let it go i mean i don't think that we're saying they're the same people at all yeah no we're not i feel like one of the things that i 
really was noting when I was reading all of these different um, excerpts from her diary, like the rituals and like the paranoia and the fear and stuff. It's not like a chill, funny thing. Like it, it's a really difficult thing that they're both living through, like her and other people that she lives with, but especially in her and Tchaikovsky, like share this experience because Tchaikovsky is documenting her everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, like, when Lev gets arrested, there's, like, uh, she starts to spend a shit ton of time standing in line to give him stuff in prison because he's in prison in, in Petersburg for a while. She spends seven, 17 months in line, and that's, like, a big... That's Ugh. basically the basis of Requiem. That's what Requiem is about. Okay. Um, and this time period, it just, like, clearly takes a psychological, physical, mental toll on her, um, on a lot of people. But the thing that I was thinking about a lot was like she talks about this thing right like the tear and we reference it as the tear and they definitely don't call it the tear that's not a russian word that's oh that, wait even, yeah. even now russians don't call it the tear yeah so so i'll tell you I'll, I'll get into the naming in a second but just like they reference it in almost like an unnamed way like, they have different sort of, like, code names. They say they, you know, for, like, the authorities. They call, oh, what do they call it? Carnival or circus or something. But, yeah, little little code names that are just, like, between them. You mean specifically Akhmatovan. Wait, how do you say her last name? Just Kovskaya? Yeah, and, but what I mean is, like, they're referring to a thing, and it's, like, this feeling, this feeling of constant fear, and, like, the way that it, they distill it, um, either in the diary and, like, conversation or in her poetry and pieces of her poetry, is, like, you know, that knowledge that at any point someone can come and ring the doorbell and arrest me, and there's a lot of, like, ringing doorbells mm-hmm. um, in the middle of the night, and, like, how the nights are the most scary, and... So it's this description of this like really horrible psychological so trying state. to sleep. I'm sleeping in here. <laughs> I'm sleeping. But just to give you, just to give a, to step out a little bit from Akhmatova's experience, like okay, the naming of terror, the terror, how we call it that in the Western world, is taken from this historian Robert Conquest of all names, who wrote, <laughs> who wrote a book in 1968 called The Great Terror. About okay. Stalin oh, there. whoa. Okay. And yeah. Does, and he that, refer, does he refer to it as the great terror within the book? Do you know? Or that's just the title of this like thing he's describing? No, I mean, I'm sure he, I don't know, but I'm sure he refers to it in the book, but he's kind of like, he's making an open allusion to the reign of terror from the French revolution. Like he's, okay. but he's talking about Stalin under Stalin. Um, another period, so when people talk about it, they also call it the Great Purges. And then we're really talking about the late 30s, 37 and 38, when there were sort of the peak of arrests within the party system. Mm-hmm. And another, and then the Russian name for it that is often used is repressions. Okay. Like, is that what, like, if you were talking about the Great Terror to a Russian today, they would say the repressions? I think so, yeah. Okay. That's what I get. And then there's Yezhovshina, which is Yezhovshina, which is um, also a Russian term. And I believe it was used earlier also. And so was repressions. Um, like at the time, it wasn't a historiography term like the Great Terror. Mm-hmm. And Yezhovshina refers to Nikolai Yezhov, which is the head of the Soviet secret police. He was the head Whoa. of the secret police okay. until he was executed like 
in the second year of the purges or something. So, and then within the diary, within Akhmatova's diary, you hear a couple of terms. There's zastinok, which is like literally a word for like behind the wall, behind the walls. Just fear, the word fear, uh, just the word that. <laughs> wow. Because they're just describing a, f- a feeling. And then like, and a phenomenon also, but this phenomenon of, of lots of people in it getting arrested. And then post-secret speech, we're talking uh, Khrushchev period, the terms, these sort of like formal Soviet terms that I encountered in this text that Shukovskaya kind of documents are the mass breach of socialist legality. <laughs> okay. Okay. And Do the, is that the phrase that he used in the secret speech or they don't know? I don't know if it's from the secret speech, but it's from okay. that like rhetoric, that time okay. period. Wait, say it again. The mass breach of socialist legality. Okay. And another one is the consequences of the Stalin personality cult. <laughs> okay. Paul Stalin's fault. <laughs> because, yeah, and the, they're really, I mean, I, I really don't want to like give a <laughs> full definition of like the terror or the system of the penal system because it's quite like the history is really large and it's not only under Stalin but there's conflicting I think theories of like but that it's like mostly accepted now that Stalin was like very much a part like very much um, an initiator of these repressions and that like it involved at least so at different periods it involved different people but a lot of it is about purging the party so like upper echelons maybe this would be a good time to talk about numbers but i really felt this probably in reading the, the excerpts from the akhmatova diary is that the terror like what we call the terror it seems to be like it was in a lot of ways targeting like an elite group of people the intelligentsia um if they're not party members the sort of like former aristocrats yeah, I mean, that makes sense because this one paper that you sent, which I think, when was it published? In like the 90s, 93? Yeah, so I don't know. Maybe there's stuff that's more accurate now. Like they talk about how the overall education level of people within the gulag like increased significantly in those two years, 37 and 38. Yeah, so there's like, it's like a phenomenon that is circulating within a particular sort of class of people as much as like, People like to think that there are no classes. There obviously are. And there's like leftover residue. Like I was describing with the communal apartment, how that worked. That was like, you know, it's not so clean as just like everyone became proletariats. So the people who are part of this like intelligentsia group, it's natural that like if you're experiencing that as a group and your friends are experiencing it, you think everyone is experiencing it. Yeah. And Akhmatova basically said that. Like she basically said... Like, this is something that, like, the people who who don't know this is happening are just, like, lying, and they do know, and, like, everyone knows how bad Stalin is and, like, how bad this situation is, or they should know, basically. She was, like, very uncompromising in her I mean, but who, who wouldn't have known realistically? I mean, a lot of people just, like, had other shit that they were dealing with, like, they were starving in Ukraine, for example, and, like, millions of people were dying. And just people were not, like... And a lot of people... Okay, in Petersburg... But those like, people were starving because of Stalin's policies, presumably, no? I mean, yeah, the st- I really can't, don't know about the starvation topic. I just mean, like, not, like, the terror and, like, the arrests right. were not affecting everyone. Because, like, 
it, sure, it's affecting a lot of people because it's not just affecting the people who are arrested, but all of the people who know them. So yeah, I mean, like, you know, it, reverberations. But according, yeah. but yeah, maybe it's not as I, I don't know. According to this, uh, I don't know anything about like gulag numbers, but it seems to be a very sensitive topic. Yeah, yeah, it is. So, um, so, so prefacing it here that we're just get, I'm just taking information from this one particular article that was published, like I guess after the the Russian government like opened up archives about arrests and stuff and executions. Uh-huh. Um, I think that's what this this article is from. Um, and they're claiming that so there's this one table I'm looking at right now that lists all the scholars that have done research in this area and scholars prior to this point, and I don't know since 1993, so there's probably new stuff, had tended to overestimate the number of arrests. But in between 37 and 38, the total arrests, documentable arrests, so I guess like stuff that is gleaned from the archives and not estimated, um, was about 2.5 million. So it's not like, I mean, that's, that's a really big number. So it's a really big number, but I people knew that people are being arrested. You can't arrest 2.5 million people and like people are just like do to do. No, 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 totally. And with it, okay, so that's within the whole Soviet Union, but like the numbers thing, it, yeah, it is I don't I hope we don't get trolled for this. It's definitely like really sensitive. Yeah. Um but because like the reason it's sensitive and this paper talks about it is because people use that data in different ways and a lot of people and there's been like not a lot of people, sorry. There's just been huge discrepancies. Like, in right. the, there were scholars that said 20 million people were, uh, arrested. were arrested by the yeah. peak, were in the camps. Anak Madhava says at one point in the diary, or sorry, Chukovska says at one point in the diary, just like quoting Akhmatova, I think, um, that there were 18 million victims of, of the oppression, or I think it's being translated like repression, oppression. Okay. 18 million. Like, where is that number from at this time? I mean, I don't know. Like, I have no idea either, but it's just like that. These are the, so this is the sort of like magnitude. And that's important, I think, just to like note that there's a huge discrepancy in, in data, basically. Um, And then the population I looked up from the population of the Soviet Union, there was a really controversial census that didn't get published in 1937 or, but in 1937, like what's been, I guess retroactively discovered is that there are 162 million people in the Soviet Union, which makes 2.75, about 1%. Which was the number arrested, you mean, or the number in the camps at the time? Well, what's 2.75 million is from that chart. I think it's the number of people in the penal system. Yeah, okay, yeah. So in in 38, yeah, 2.75. Yeah, it was, I think this paper said it was about like 0.77% of the Soviet population with higher numbers especially in those years of educated people and of people of russian polish and german descent the one point this paper made that i appreciated was like okay when you're discussing numbers like was it three million or was it like 20 million or was it seven million like it almost like it matters but it kind of doesn't because 2.5 million is still a shit ton of people so like yeah you don't have to be like well if it was only 2.5 then we're okay with Stalin but if it was seven then we're not like it's right. all really really bad and the paper is trying to say like we're not tr- the paper is like we're just trying to do like a quantitative overview we're not trying to like 
explain like how horrible this was or not horrible or like yeah. make a judgment on it. And that's what's important is because a lot of people sort of like interpret smaller numbers as being like Stalin apology, which <laughs> yeah. is fucked up. <laughs> he like, only imprisoned three million. <laughs> right. Like, well, like under him, I don't know, like his direct activity in this, like, as I said, in the early 30s, there's like even more people died of starvation. Right. Nearby. <laughs> yeah. So, Yeah. Not not a very good dude is what we're or the conclusion. It's the or just like the time also. I mean, I, I'm I, okay. Maybe I am being apologist. I just like the the magnitude of death is like really large. It's really it's really large. Yeah. I mean, we should we should do an episode actually about the gulag and then actually research the numbers. Well, yeah, the gulag because the gulag is such a long period of time like that obviously 2.5 people doesn't cover everyone so maybe it doesn't cover everybody and then you also million the, maybe in overall the question of executions which like scholars who estimate really high like say 18 million total arrests uh according to this one chart peg the number of executions between 1921 and 53 is 7 million um and this paper says the documentable amount is 799,455 so under a million executed people. But like also that's still a lot. It's so yeah. many people. Yeah. Yeah. It's really And a especially lot of if it's like more within a certain like imagine it's more within a certain sort of like social uh layer or whatever, like right. class. You, then it's even more like palpable. It's just like Jesus Christ. For for it's, uh, it's for sort of a people. genocide, some might say. I mean, yeah. So so let me I just I wanna bring in like this Chukovskaya and Akhmatova's conversation about this kind of like who was involved and who was affected because they disagree um as I said like on the numbers not not about the numbers they don't argue about the numbers it's just like she mentions 18 million at one point also I'm curious I I forgot to check this like if what Solzhenitsyn said I think he also oh he has huge numbers I'm yeah (laughs) yeah one billion He's like more than the population of Russia, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> kidding. Okay, so basically, like, yeah, Shukovskaya later, later in the 60s, she's writing about the time in the 30s, saying, "In those days, Anna Andreeva lived under the spell of the torture chamber, demanding from herself and others constant memory of it, despising those who behaved as though it didn't exist." And then she, she talks about like. There's this excerpt that says, the city went on living its usual life, working, studying, falling in love, reading the newspapers, taking time off, listening to the radio, going to the theater cinema, around a friend's house, celebrating in earnest the birthdays of friends and loved ones, families gathering for the May and November holidays, merrily singing the new year, and all this was perhaps the most terrible of all. And presumably she's suggesting that those people are not aware of what's going on um, in the 30s. But then like, there's conflict within the sort of elite group the intelligentsia there's sort of conflicting opinion because like another um very important literary scholar Lydia Ginsburg also Lydia but Ginsburg <laughs> says that she says like the terrible backdrop did not leave one's consciousness the very same people who in the morning had received news of the loss of their loved ones in the terror interesting what word she's using there uh, I don't have the Russian attended the ballet were entertained as guests played cards and relaxed at the dacha. Those same people who went cold at the sound of every nighttime ring of the doorbell, awaiting arrest. While one is still safe, one shields oneself, distracts oneself, sees the day. Mm-hmm.
You want to say that's the episode? Oh, yeah, that's the episode. Thanks for listening. Oh, God, there's too many things to say. All right. We need to start saying that in the beginning, actually, I've been thinking. but Yeah, it's true. You, you right, guys, so if you make it, if you are listening to the end right now, you know what we say at the end every time. So just not everybody run through is, that lit. Not everybody's a repeated listener. But anyway, right. the most Patreon. important thing is support us on Patreon. Yeah. yeah. Patreon.com slash yep. Um. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs>